0: Greetings, family. I am Pastor Jeremy, and I'm just so glad uh, that you've decided to join us for another lecture. We're going to jump right in as usual. Um, Last week, I told you that when John Wesley died, there were approximately 115,449 Methodists in the world, and that today uh, there are more than 12 million of us. But how did John and his partners in ministry uh, grow their following to those numbers? How did we get from that first number to there being several million Methodists in the world? To try to explain that a little bit, I've got two numbers for you. Uh, The first is 225,000. That's how many miles scholars say John Wesley traveled in his long life and ministry to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, From England to America, from Savannah, Georgia to Bristol, and many other places, we could spend days and days and days naming. Uh, The next number I want to share with you is 40,000. That's how many sermons Wesley is reported to have preached, from uh, his sermons at Oxford University to his open air sermons in fields, from justification by faith preached in 1746 to spiritual worship preached in 1780. It's pretty difficult to argue that Wesley wasn't the single most important figure uh, in the evangelical movement of the mid to late 1700s. This can be seen in the fact that even being the newest, Methodism became the largest Protestant denomination uh, in the United States pretty quickly uh, though he was ordained as an Anglican priest he decided to travel preaching the gospel to all who would listen instead of just staying in one pa- uh one parish in, in uh, 1756 he wrote in a letter that he didn't believe that it was God's will for any congregation to only have one teacher and that he thought that he would preach himself in a congregation to sleep if he stayed there for an entire year um, His travels, however, sometimes led him to preach within the parishes of other ministers. When some spoke up about their disdain and distaste for this, uh, Wesley quite famously said, I look upon all the world as my parish. Thus far, I mean that in whatever part of it I am, I judge it meet, right, and my boden duty to declare unto all that are willing to hear the glad tidings of salvation. Uh, The part of that that we hear quoted most often is that first part, I look upon all the world as my parish. Uh, This has a great deal to do with how Methodism spread. The idea that it is the Christian's job to speak the gospel to anyone who desires to hear it paired with uh, the call to do so wherever we possibly can and wherever we are. Uh, But also the idea that the gospel is for everyone and that there's room for everyone at the table of God's kingdom. Today, as we conclude our rekindle sermon series and continue our exploration of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be taking a look at two banquet parables of Jesus in chapter 14. Uh, We're going to be focusing primarily on verses 7 through 24, but let's start with verses 1 through 6 just to give us our context. Let's read together. Luke 14, starting at verse 1. Um, And it reads, On the Sabbath, uh, when Jesus went to share a meal at the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. A man suffering from an abnormal swelling of the body was there. Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, does the law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? But they said nothing. Jesus took hold of the sick man, cured him, and then let him go. He said to them, suppose your child or an ox fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, would you immediately pull it out? But he heard no response. Our setting is the home of a Pharisee leader. Uh, Jesus had been invited to his home to share a meal, uh, and there notices a man whose body is swollen. He addresses the idea that it is not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then heals the man and says, If one of your children or livestock were stuck in a ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't you help them? If you were with us last week, this should all sound very familiar. The exact same scenario happens in chapter 13 uh, with a woman at the center. Seeing it again here brings back the idea of centering human need over law, tradition, and custom. It also sets the stage for what we see in the parables ahead. Now, uh, getting into our main focus for today, let's read verses 7 through 15. When Jesus notices how the guests sought out the best seats at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor. Someone more highly regarded than you uh, might have been invited by the host. The host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give your seat to this other person. Embarrassed, you will take your seat in the least important place. Instead, uh, when you receive an invitation, go and sit in the least important place. Uh, When your host approaches you, he will say, friend, move up here to a better seat. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests all who lift themselves up will be brought down, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Then Jesus said to the person who invited him, when you host a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the lame, and The blind, and when and then you will be blessed because they can't repay you, instead, you'll be repaid when the just are resurrected. When one of the dinner guests heard Jesus' remark, uh, he said to Jesus, Happy are those who will feast in God's kingdom. This parable is divided into two sections jesus's address to the guests in verses uh, 7 through 11 and jesus's words to the host in verses 12 through 14. both groups uh, of scripture end with an eschatological application in the case of the first grouping uh, verses 7 through 11 it's important to know that uh, meals and dinner parties at this time were usually subject to a pretty stringent social structure that is to say that at any given meal when and what someone ate along with where they sat was dependent upon their social standing. We have kind of an account of how these situations worked from a, uh, an a, um, author and magistrate and lawyer called Pliny the Younger from ancient Rome. He said, um, some very elegant dishes were served up to himself and a few more of the company, while those which were placed before the rest were cheap and paltry. He had apportioned in small flagons three different sorts of wine, but you are not to suppose it, it was uh, the guest that it was that the guests might ha- take their choice. On the contrary, that they might not choose at all. One was for himself and me, the next for his friends or uh, of lower order, uh, and the next for his own freedmen and mine. There, Pliny describes uh, wine coming out at a dinner. And the best wine being saved for himself and the host. And uh, the, uh, there's a declining uh, quality of wine giving to everyone of lower social status. Uh, when Jesus observes that the guests are taking, the, uh, taking um, for themselves the seats of honor, he references Proverbs 25, 6 through 7, which states, Don't exalt yourself in the presence of the king or stand in the place of important people because it is better uh, that he say to you, come up here than to be demoted before a ruler. Jesus elaborates on this proverb by advising them to sit at the lowest place when invited to a meal so that if they need to move up, the host invites them to a higher position. uh, Then they will receive honor instead of shame. Jesus here plays on a cultural dance between shame and honor that those alive in the Hellenistic period would have always been aware of uh to be honored meant advance in social position as well as notoriety and credibility while on the other hand in certain instances shame could mean um even it could even mean death but it certainly would mean a decrease in social standing and a loss of credibility um, most of the time when we see jesus being challenged by the pharisees they were challenging his honor uh, with the stakes being so high this is what brings so much tension and drama to those scenes it's also interesting that the word used in verse 10 that translates to honor or honored is doxa in Greek, which, is, which can also be translated as glory or worship. The word has a connotation that points to things that belong to God uh, when used elsewhere in Scripture. So the hearers would have gleaned that Jesus' words held greater relevance than just what was happening at the moment or for dinner parties in general. Uh, This is confirmed further when Jesus caps the address to the guest with the eschatological kingdom of God application uh, of all this by saying that those who exalt themselves will be brought down and those who humble themselves will be elevated. Here, Jesus used the temporal situation of the dinner dinner party to teach about the spiritual, to teach about the kingdom of God. He then turns his sights towards the host. He says that hosts should not invite the wealthy or powerful to share meals, but those who are poor and oppressed physically and otherwise. Uh, The implication being that one would invite the well-to-do to to meals, giving them the place of honor, boltering their ego. And in turn, the invited one would do the same for the host when it was their time to hold a dinner. Instead, Jesus advises that hosts should invite those who do nothing to repay their kindness. He tells them to give as God gives. Uh, He caps his word saying that those who invite folks who uh, cannot repay them with social favors will be rewarded by God when the just are resurrected. Jesus masterfully teaches here from a temporal perspective then adds uh, the spiritual kingdom of God meaning. Sure, one shouldn't sit in the seat of the highest honor in this world to save themselves embarrassment in case they acts move down. Uh, but in the world to come, all of the oppressive structures uh, will be done away with and anyone who seeks to live into these bygone structures will be cast down uh, while trying to exalt themselves above others. This brings to mind for me, Wesley's emphasis on doing ministry with and for the poor. Wesley felt that the table of God's kingdom and that the gospel of Jesus Christ should be open to all. When having a conversation with a woman who wrote uh, to Wesley saying that though she was a Christian, she avoided doing ministry with the poor because they were dirty, among other things. He said this, I, am found, I have found some of the uneducated poor who have exquisite taste and sentiment and many, very many of the rich who have scantly any at all. The poorest of the poor uh, Who if they have not taste have souls Which you may forward in their way to heaven uh, And they have Many of them faith In the love of God in a larger measure Than any person I know Now let's take a look At verses 16 through 24 Jesus replied A certain man hosted a large Dinner and invited many people When it was time for the dinner to begin He sent his servant to tell the invited guests Come the dinner is ready now One by one, they all began to make excuses. The first one told him, "Uh, I bought a farm and must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, "Uh, I bought five teams of oxen, and I'm going to check them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married. I can't come. When he returned, the servant reported these excuses to the master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go quickly to the city streets, the busy ones and the side streets, and bring the poor, uh, the blind, and the lame. The servant said, Master, your instructions have been followed and there's still room. The master said to the servant, go to the highways and back alleys and urge people to come in so that uh, my house will be filled. I tell you, no one, uh, not one of those who are invited will taste my dinner. In this parable, a wealthy man sends out his servant to confirm with the invited parties that they will be in in attendance. One by one, each of the invited guests offer excuses for why they won't be able to make it. One because uh, they bought a farm, and another because they had just bought a few teams of oxen, and another because they had just gotten married. All of these excuses could be considered the ancient Near Eastern equivalent to, I can't because I have to wash my hair. I mean, come on, who would buy land or livestock without seeing them first, especially in, a, in an agrarian society? But looking deeper... The first two excuses could point to material possessions keeping people from the blank the banquet, keeping people from the gospel, from salvation, from the kingdom of God. Uh, the third excuse could point to temporal relationships doing the same. It reminds me of Jesus saying a few chapters earlier: Who are my brothers and sisters? Or who are who are my mother and my brothers, those who do the will of God? Uh, but it's only after the people who have things refuse that the host Uh, decides to invite those who have nothing. It's almost as if uh, those who have nothing, it's almost as if their lack frees them to be able to come to the banquet. Here we see the exaltation spoken about in verse 11 coming to form, but also the advice given to host in verse 13. All in all, this parable shows that all are invited to the banquet. It's just a matter of who shows up to partake in the food. We are all invited into the kingdom of God. We're not. Um, we're not. Um, we're not excluded based on our race or uh, our age or any other temporal human idea that you could add to us. It's just a matter of who answers the call. It's a matter of who accepts the invitation.